Our own culture, as we've seen, trivializes these issues. But we know that it's really important. And you may have already spotted that the majority of what Jesus uh, says in this passage is to underline how catastrophically damaging lust can be, but also what radical action uh, may be required of us. Now, we need to read and hear this passage in the light of the Bible's wider teaching. So we need to remember that marriage and the companionship and the compassion uh, that it brings uh, and the, the wonderful, uh, enriching uh, joy of sexual intimacy, uh, all of those are God's gifts to us. They are good, they are right, uh, and they are beautiful. And marriage is portrayed throughout the Bible as weighty and exclusive and lifelong. And as our marriage service puts it, it's not something to be undertaken carelessly, lightly, or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly and after a serious thought. Our passage today begins uh, in a similar way to the, how the passage began last week. So Jesus begins, you've heard it said, dot, dot, dot. This time Jesus quotes at the seventh commandment, you shall not commit uh, adultery, or as the uh, Sunday school uh, child once uh, misremembered, you shall not admit adultery. Uh, but Jesus has no problem or issue with this commandment. It's not that he thinks uh, it doesn't apply. In fact, far from it. But just as with murder, Jesus widens the bite points of the commandment to include anger and ridicule and hatred, so Jesus widens our understanding of adultery. It's not just the physical act of being sexually intimate with someone who's not a husband or a wife. It's more than that. It's something that we can do in our own head or in our own heart. You know this. We can undress someone in our own mind and fantasize how it would feel to be intimate with them. Uh, we can dream about how another person will appreciate us or love us or fulfill us sexually uh, when we feel that our spouse right now does not. Uh, we can deny that uh, others are wonderful people made in God's image by reducing them to being objects of our own lust and desire, enslaving them to our own selfish and short-sighted sexual needs. So I think we, we know and we understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there is more to adultery than actually having sex with someone that we're not married to. There are 101 ways that we can be emotionally and psychologically unfaithful, thinking ourselves into the arms of another. But the most surprising thing about this really short passage is that Jesus devotes most of his time to underlining the radical action we should take if we find that our hearts and our minds are feeding on lust, if we realize that we are dwelling on the ways that someone else might fulfill, excite, or love us. Gouge out your eye, he says. Cut off your hands. Better to be maimed than to be in hell. 
And this is, of course, where so many 21st century people part company with Jesus. And they say, lighten up, don't be so down on sex and attraction. Why the drama, Jesus? Why be so, so, so radical in what you say? We're going to spend the rest of our time trying to start answering that question. Firstly, Bible commentators agree that Jesus is using forceful and vivid images here. He's using dramatic metaphors to make the point that sexual purity and faithfulness are beautiful things. This is part of the Bible's resounding yes to the incomparable, joyful, heart and soul strengthening wonder of sexual intimacy. And this is part of the Bible's firm no to cheap love and debasing others and hypocrisy and being selfish in the way we express our sexual appetites. These are strong ways to say adultery of any kind, actual or imagined, corrode and spoil marriages. So it's also saying the battle to learn self-control is worth it, even though some of the action that you may need to take will feel serious and radical, drastic even. We need uh, to examine our lives honestly, uh, to recognize our vulnerabilities, and so set ourselves simple guidelines. Secondly, we need to remember that part of the reason that Jesus uses such strong and vivid language is that the wonderful gift of sexual intimacy is such a fiercely powerful experience. Even guilty, adulterous sex can feel amazing in the moment. And so such a powerful appetite and capacity with which we are gifted needs to be protected and nurtured and controlled. Because sex is such a powerful experience, we need to take strong measures to relish it in the right place and to run from it when it's out of control. Our vivid imaginations are themselves a gift from our Creator God, which means that learning self-control means control over how we see others and control over what we look like. Look at, sorry. Thirdly, we shouldn't, though, confuse feeling tempted and attracted to someone with seeing them adulterously. Martin Luther had a great image uh, to help us understand this. It's a, it's a bit sort of 16th century, uh, but this is what he said. He said, we can't stop birds flying around our heads, but we can stop them nesting in our hair. I've never had a problem with either of those things, really, but I, I think we understand what he means. You can't stop birds flying around your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. There is a difference between a fleeting thought about someone, whatever that's prompted by, as compared to dwelling on that thought and to giving time to that thought and giving time to imagine the thrill or the safety or the comfort of being in the arms of another. We are not serving Jesus if we spiral into self-hatred every time we have a sexual thought or a sexual impulse. Our culture might taunt us with the accusation 
that Jesus is just encouraging self-loathing here, which we understand as a bad thing. We must prove that this is not so. And we must help others see that real self-loathing, real self-loathing is the experience of those whose hearts and minds have been saturated with porn or those who have had a sexual relationship with someone who does. That's where the real self-loathing lies. So, how does this apply uh, to us as a congregation here? For the last 60 years, many, if not all Christians, we have felt on the back foot uh, when, it, uh, when we have been confronted by the swaggering self-confidence of uh, the sexual revolution. And if you've been a Christian all that time, you will know what I mean. We haven't enjoyed all the name-calling and the shaming that we have received from our culture, being called prudes and bores and, uh, and, and just being made out uh, to feel uh, that we've got this all wrong, that, that there was a whole great rush of liberty uh, that we missed and that we have been against. We do need to recognize that we have ground uh, to recover, if we are honest. Our children and our grandchildren see in our past, this is what they see, because our kids tell us all the time, they see in our past paedophilia, and they see Jimmy Savile, and they see sexual abuse within the church and the BBC and the great institutions of our culture, and they see us tainted with that and broken by that and complicit with that. We need to own, we need to own that and share that we have been trying at the very least to be different, even though the church has often failed. And terrible things have happened on our watch within the church. Now I doubt that it was any of us here specifically and personally, but we have been part of a culture of deference and hypocrisy. A culture that has said it's better to hush things up for the greater good. A culture that has said uh, that it is uh, the, the glory and the importance of the church seeming to be great and to be together outshines at the needs of individuals who have been so desperately let down. And it may be that part of being what Jesus described as maimed, i.e. without an eye or without a hand, part of what that would mean, it's obviously a metaphor, is that we will live with parts of our culture looking down on us and calling us simplistic, repressed even, certainly calling us Philistines. That might be part of the cost, even as we have so much that is good uh, to share with our wider culture. I've been reading uh, the last couple of weeks a book by uh, Louise Perry, who is, um, would describe herself as a liberal feminist. No, no sense at all of being a Christian. And she's written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And the point of her book is essentially that the sexual revolution, as it's called, has been absolutely wonderful for a few men and some people uh, who've been wanting to make a lot of money and it's been a complete disaster for almost all women. And she's 
uh, making a liberal, secular case for a new sexual revolution uh, that, in a sense, sweeps away so much of what has been accepted. We, as Christian people, have really good things to share. Of course, we do it with humility because we know that our own house is not clean, but we do it with uh, quiet confidence in amidst uh, that humility. Now, this is where you come in because we need to help uh, the next two generations. Uh, the next two generations coming after us are growing up uh, floating in the raw sewage of, of a porn culture that is broken and twisted in ways that we can scarcely understand or scarcely comprehend. And if we're honest, we don't really want to. Uh, the next two generations need parents and grandparents and uncles and aunties who can say two really important things. The first is we need people who can say life is really fulfilling without sex, as of course it was for Jesus. And so we need people who are willing and able to share that, in a sense to dethrone uh, the, the false god uh, of uh, sexual satisfaction, particularly casual sexual satisfaction. And the second thing we need to do is to say how liberating, faithful, and committed married love is. So those are the two things that we need to share with these next two generations because we can hardly begin to imagine how hard it is uh, to grow up now uh, just in the, in the raw sewage uh, that is out there. It is harder than ever uh, to be uh, distinctly uh, Christian. And uh, we need to, uh, in a sense, observe that, and then we need to lead uh, our next two generations. As we close, uh, just to say that, of course, every time uh, Jesus talks about any form of sin, we always know that it's not to condemn and it's not uh, to belittle people and it's not to make us scurry off in shame. But it's, in a sense, it's the kind doctor who brings uh, light and shines it on dark places uh, so that we uh, can know wholeness and forgiveness. And the last thing that we need to repent of as a church culture is that we have put sexual sin in a whole other category. And we have sort of implied that there's no coming back from it. And so I wouldn't want you to hear anything that Jesus has said this morning in terms of the radical, drastic action that we may need to take. All of us are different. All of, us, all of, us, all of our imaginations work in different ways. But it may be for some of us that we will need to take action that is radical and uh, and, and you know, it does feel like the chopping off of a limb or the gouging out of an eye in terms of it is serious and radical. So we need to hear that. But we also need to hear uh, that uh, there is forgiveness and grace. And that we won't simply, uh, in a sense, be better at this as a culture uh, simply uh, by uh, trying harder. Uh, what will most help us is for our gaze and our love uh, 
to be on God himself and for a desire on our part to have the Holy Spirit in us changing what we want and what we desire. So there's great work to be done here. There's great things to share with our next two generations. But let's be honest and let's be real about the things that we've got wrong, but also the things that we've learned through hard experience, through in a sense, the determination and the resilience of married love. That sometimes we feel maybe we feel a bit quiet about, we feel we can't really share because it's going so much against the culture. Let's not be embarrassed by how beautiful it is uh, to uh, love another person and to stay with them and to honor them. Uh, let's not uh, forget that and let's not let this raw sewage that is washing around our culture infect uh, the way we see others just so good for a church community uh, to be a place where we respect other people uh, for who they are uh, rather than uh, demeaning them. There's so much here uh, that we need uh, to talk about more personally. And so if there are things that you'd like to pray over with somebody uh, or just uh, tap someone on the shoulder, uh, then uh, please do.